This morning we're picking up the story of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20 of this chapter. If you can remember back to the long ago days before Christmas and New Year's when we were looking at Luke chapters 1 and 2, you'll remember that those chapters were about the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. And so here in Luke chapter 3, we find ourselves jumping ahead many years in the timeline, probably 15 or 20 years from when we left Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple in Jerusalem. And now the focus has shifted once again to Jesus, the prophet, from Jesus to the prophet, John the Baptist. So Luke begins chapter 3 by introducing John's ministry in terms of the political leaders of the Roman Empire and of Palestine, the area where Jesus and John lived. So we see that Caesar Augustus, who was ruling at Jesus' birth, has been replaced by Tiberius Caesar. And Herod, who ruled the whole region, has died, and the territory he governed was divided up into four parts and at first given to his sons. Some of his sons didn't fare so well as leaders, and so they were replaced. And so, as we'll see when we read, there are four leaders mentioned here. Two of them are his sons. Two of them are others who replaced his sons. But we do see a man here called Herod, who was Herod Antipas, one of Herod's sons who ruled over the area of Galilee, where John was ministering and where Jesus grew up. Now, if we were reading any other ancient history and we read this introduction about these political leaders, we might think, well, this is just like any other ancient history. We're going to see who the, the real movers and shakers are. We're going to read about political intrigue, and this guy knocked off that guy, right? That's usually how history works. It focuses on the people in charge. But we see that Luke is writing a different kind of history. It's a supernatural history. It's a theological history of God's work in the world. And so Luke makes that shift for us in the middle of verse 2. After he recounts the political leaders and the religious leaders, he says, The word of God came to John. So the important stuff in Luke chapter 3 is not what earthly Caesars and governors do, but what the Lord of the universe has to say of God's word coming to this man, John, the son of Zechariah. And John faithfully ministers the word that he receives from God. So as we go through these first 20 verses of Luke chapter 3 this morning, we're going to summarize the passage and summarize God's message under three words, three headings. Revelation, preparation, and incarnation. First, revelation. God reveals his new salvation. Second, preparation. The prophet John prepares Israel for what God is doing in this new salvation. And finally, incarnation. Incarnation is the totally unexpected way that God reveals his new salvation. So revelation, preparation, and incarnation. Let's read the passage together, beginning in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to God's word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to raise, able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. This is God's word. The first word we're using to describe God's message is revelation. We see this idea in the passage in a couple of ways. First, the, the fact that God's word comes to John, the son of Zechariah, is God revealing himself to John with a message for God's people. This message clearly doesn't belong to John. It didn't originate with him. It came from God. And so John is the messenger who announces God's word. But the idea of revelation is really there in the quote from Isaiah 40. So in your Bible, these lines are arranged like poetry. Verses 4 through 6 of Luke 3 quote Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And in the last line of the quotation, we read, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see. Something will be made visible. God's salvation will be revealed. God is up to something. 
The Hebrew version of this uh, text says, uh, has the theme of Revelation even more clearly. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So Isaiah prophesies a day when God re- will reveal his glory to the world, where everyone will see it. And Luke is here to tell us that day has come. The day of God's revelation is here. But what exactly is God revealing? As we mentioned earlier in our service, Isaiah 40 is part of this thing that Bible scholars call the new exodus. So the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are for Israel when they are in the Babylonian captivity. And there's kind of a parallel between their captivity in Babylon and their captivity in Egypt, which had happened centuries before. And God comes to them in their distress in Babylon, and he announces a message of comfort, a message of good news. And the message is that once again, I will save you. Just like before, when I supernaturally delivered those plagues upon Pharaoh, and I I parted the waters, and I provided for you in the wilderness, and I led you by the cloud and the fire, once again, I will do those same kinds of things. We see it in Isaiah in the way he says that a path will be made in the wilderness, in the desert, a highway for our God, right? This highway is going to be smooth and straight. There's no no stoplights on it. No, No valleys, no craggy mountains to circumvent. An easy path for God's people to walk straight out of prison and into fellowship with God. And this is all the more amazing because it's God telling Israel, despite all of your sin, I'm still not done with you. I'm going to save you again. I wonder if you've ever been rescued from a, a huge mistake you've made. And maybe you, you let your finances get out of control, you've racked up a bunch of credit card debt, and you just think, there's no way I'm ever going to get out of this. And just by God's kindness... You know, a, a check comes at the right time from that old uncle you had, or you get that pay raise at work, and, and you know, a few months later you find you've, you've worked your way out of it. You've been delivered. And a lot of times after an experience like that, we think, whoa, man, I'm never going to let that happen again. And then you do. And, and don't you think that second time, well, maybe I've used up all my, my salvations. Maybe this, you know, it's, it's one thing to expect a miracle once, but again, we just kind of think we don't deserve it. You know, I think this is an experience a lot of students have when they're crunching for finals. They're uttering those prayers, Lord, help me just one last time get through this. And the next semester they find themselves uttering the same prayer. And that's not autobiographical at all. <laughs> I wonder if Israel felt this way in Babylon. You know, surely we've had this exodus, but that's, that's, a, one, that's a once in a universe kind of thing. That kind of thing doesn't happen again. But here in Isaiah, and here again in Luke, God is saying, I saved you once and I will save you again. And this salvation will be even better. John's arrival on the scene, armed with God's word, is like Moses arriving at Pharaoh's court. It's a sign that the exodus has kicked off. It's happening. Now, for us reading Luke today, it's, it's hard to put ourselves back in the position of an Israelite in John's day, right? 
we know how this story ended. And, you know, we're not captives in Babylon. But we can't ask ourselves, have we grasped the wonder of God's salvation? John's message to captive Israel, captive by their sins, is this, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's announcing this this new thing God is doing, and this new thing means washing, renewal, and forgiveness. Do you need that? Do you need washing and renewal and forgiveness? I know that I do. The point of this announcement is to give sinful people, people like you and me, an opportunity to get ready, to be saved. An opportunity to know once again the goodness of God's forgiving grace. Perhaps there are ways in which you've assumed that you've used up all of your grace. That there's no more hope for you in this area of your life. But God's forgiveness is not something that we can only experience once. He's not stingy with his forgiveness. The new salvation God reveals here reminds us that he wants us to come to him in our sin and receive forgiveness, to repent and be forgiven. Isn't that a wonder? That to those who sin, God invites us, he desires us to come and repent, and he rejoices to forgive through the work of his son, Jesus. That's what the new exodus is all about. That's what the new thing God is doing in Jesus is all about. God's doing this new work. And so we should ask, when we see this revelation of God in Christ, do I have the joy of someone who's been forgiven and saved by God? If you don't feel like you have that joy, but you want it, the next heading tells us how to receive the joy of God's salvation. The second heading is preparation. John's job is to prepare God's people for his coming. He announces, prepare the way of the Lord. And he prepares them to follow God out of their captivity into life with God. And the key way to prepare is seen in the first words of verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. This tells us something important about the kind of captivity Israel is in. It's not primarily a political captivity. Their problem is not a Pharaoh-like figure. It's not the occupying forces of Rome. Their problem is a captivity to sin. They are a people marked by bearing bad fruit. That's why John's message is so confrontational with warnings of judgment. Right? It doesn't sound like a comforting message to be called a brood of vipers, right? It doesn't sound promising when you're told the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. You're about to be cut down and thrown into the fire. They need to hear this because of their sin. They've enslaved themselves to sin by their own unrighteousness. And they deceive themselves into thinking that they are right with God because of their relationship to Abraham. Right? And that's why he cuts that off at the past. Don't say to yourselves, 
We're okay because we have Abraham as our father. That's, what, that's not what this is about. God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. He's calling them to get ready for the salvation that God has revealed through repentance. In this short account of John's ministry, we see this call to repentance, and then we get to see, apparently, three examples of people who are at least asking the right question. Three groups who all in some way or other ask, what shall we do? So the, first the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers, they all say something like, John, you've told us to repent. Well, what does that mean? What then shall we do? And at first reading, I think John's answers sound kind of mundane. We might even say too works-oriented. But they sound pretty simple. Share what you have. If you have two toe tunics, be willing to share one. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than you've been authorized to take. If you're a soldier, you know, don't use that authority to, to threaten and extort and steal. Be content with what you have. Sounds like pretty simple stuff, you know? Stuff we teach our kids. But what does it mean that, that, that God is calling his people to this kind of repentance? Well, it must mean that these were problems. You know, hoarding, extortion, theft. These must have marked God's people during this time. This alone gives us some insight into the, the level of, of sin that was in Israel. But it also shows us something else. I think that's more immediately applicable to us. Notice that all these fruits of repentance that John highlights, they all have something to do with the way we treat other people. They all have to do with money and possessions. And the last two of them concern the abuse of authority. This shows us that God is very concerned with the way we treat others, with the way we use our money, and the way we use our authority. These things reveal our hearts towards God. Our relationship with our Creator, the one who made us, is revealed in how we treat His image bearers. So when we neglect to help others, when we take advantage of our position of authority to mistreat people made in the image of God, because of that, we rightly deserve God's judgment. When we hoard and worship our wealth, we're turning our backs on God to worship a false God. And we deserve God's judgment. Do you believe that? Or has your heart grown hard? towards issues like these. What does your life reveal? Does it reveal bad fruits? Are you stingy or generous with what you have? Are you quick to notice the needs of others and move towards them with help? And these don't only need to be considered as material needs. Think about the, the relational and emotional needs you see around you. When you see your family or your spouse or your children with, with needs, do you, do you seek to meet them and care for them? Or are you tempted to neglect and ignore them, to find some other way to occupy your time and attention? Or how do you use your authority, whether at home or at work, 
Do you take as much as you can get, as much as you can kind of get away with and leave others to deal with the fallout? How do you use your authority? These are just a few things mentioned in this passage, but you could also use a passage like the one Glenn read for us in Ephesians 5. You could examine your life by all the things that Paul calls us to and ask, am I walking as an imitator of God? Am I walking in the light? Am I walking in wisdom? Or is there impurity and covetousness that marks my life? Does your life show fruit in keeping with repentance? Or does it show fruit that's more consistent with serving yourself? John calls these crowds who've come to him to be baptized, he calls them to repent. And though he's preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness, but there's hope here, his message does come with this warning. The axe of God's judgment is swinging now. It's laid to the roots. We see that the revelation of God's salvation to all people does not mean that all people will be saved. Like the bit at the end about Herod is is especially illustrative there, right? He's just mounting evil upon evil. It means, though, that all people are presented with a choice. Repent. Receive God's salvation by faith or be cut off from God's presence forever. That's what preparation means here. We are to prepare to be saved by God by taking account of our lives, by honestly looking at our sin by repenting of the way we've failed to love God and love God's people. Are you prepared for salvation? The last descriptor for our passage is incarnation. This may seem like a strange word to use here, right? We may think, well, we've left off the parts of Luke that were all about the incarnation, right, of Jesus being born. And if you're not familiar with theological words, this sounds all the more strange, But the word incarnation just refers to Scripture's teaching that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So how does that show up in our passage? Remember what we saw at the beginning, that God is revealing this new exodus. And when you think about the first exodus and you read about it in the Scriptures, it's often spoken of in terms of, of God visiting his people to save them. God coming to his people. But, you know, in, in that coming of God, we don't see God showing up, you know, as a man like he does in Christ, right? We see, we see God coming through Moses, the prophet and leader, the mediator. We see God speaking words to Pharaoh through Moses. And then we see these supernatural things like the plagues and the Red Sea and the manna in the wilderness. So we, we could imagine a, a coming of God that John is talking about in those same terms. You know, maybe we should expect the next thing in Luke to be, you know, John going somewhere and proclaiming more and plagues coming down and some supernatural event happening. You could read John that way. But it becomes clear that John is talking about a different kind of coming of God. God's new exodus is coming in a way that's different and greater than the first exodus. And that is because God himself will come to Israel as a man. 
and this proclamation of John about this coming comes because of this question that the people have in their hearts. That's an amazing detail of itself. We, you know, we see Jesus doing this, where there'll be some, some grumbling and, and thoughts of hearts going on, and Jesus will identify it and answer it. Well, now John does it, right? He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's God's prophet. And he knows that the people are questioning whether he's the Christ. He is God's Messiah. And so he tells them what the Christ is really like. So we see this when he says that Jesus is coming The one who is coming is mightier than I. And he says that he himself, John, this great prophet, full of the Holy Spirit, he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoe, right? He's not worthy to serve as the lowliest of servants in the Messiah's presence. The difference that John is articulating there is a difference between a man and God. That's the distance between John and Christ who is coming. And then John goes on to compare Jesus' ministry and his ministry. He describes his own baptism as the, the baptism by water. But he says that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this raises a lot of questions for us. But I think if we kind of keep the main thing, the main thing we see... Whoa. I don't think that was a supernatural act. It was just a failure on the Amazon mic stand. If we keep the main thing the main thing, we see that Jesus is coming to do what only God has the right to do. Jesus' ministry in this way is, is not like John's. John was a messenger, a servant of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit, but he, he kind of had to take his marching orders from God's word. But Christ's work is the work of the Holy Spirit himself. Christ's work is the work of of fire. The imagery of fire is throughout this passage as, as one of judgment. So for Christ to baptize someone with fire in this context means to be judged. He's going to throw the, the chaff into the place of unquenchable fire. So Christ is presented here as the, the divine savior and the, the divine judge. He is God, doing God's work. He has the authority and power to save by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he has the authority to condemn people to the place of unquenchable fire. These are the works of God himself. God is coming in Christ. God is coming. He is the the mighty one, the worthy one, and he is coming in the flesh. This theme carries through explicitly in verse 17. Let me read that for us again. And as we read, notice the repetition of the word his. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now try to remember back to to John, what John was doing. John doesn't have a threshing floor. He doesn't have his own tool even. When John speaks of the axe, it's, it's, it's someone else's axe. It's the axe being laid, right? But the Christ, he has his own fork. <laughs> you know, he's lifting up the, the grain and letting the wheat and chaff separate. It's Christ doing it. And it's Christ's threshing floor, right? And it's Christ's barn that he gathers the wheat into. 
Christ is presented here as the, the owner of the field and the farm and the whole operation. Christ is no mere prophet. He is God himself coming to his own people to save them and to judge them. As Simeon prophesied, to be for the rising and falling of many, he is going to raise up and he is going to cast down. Whether you're Caesar or Herod or the tax collector who comes to be baptized. So we're being prepared here by John, not simply for miraculous wonders like the Red Sea. We are being prepared to meet God himself in flesh and blood. That is the incarnation. I think that's really the big idea of of this whole passage. He's asking, God is asking his people through his servant John, are you ready to come face to face with me? And the issue in your lives is not whether you're children of Abraham, but whether you have been given new life from me. I think that's really important when when John says, do not say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. In a strange way, I think that's the heart of the matter. Has God raised you up? Has God given you a new heart? Israel was living a life of outward religiosity, right? I mean, it's something that John's out here doing these strange things in the wilderness and crowds are coming to him to be baptized, right? And yet it's to these religiously minded crowds who want his baptism that John is saying, you're a brood of vipers. You're under judgment. It's to them he's calling, calling them to repentance. He's saying, your hearts are far from God. You're dead in your sins, as Paul would say it. So they're living this life of outward religiosity. They're claiming their status as Abraham's children. And yet clearly they're having no problem defrauding each other, abusing each other, being stingy with what God has provided to them. But John is saying, your time is up. The mighty one has come. Christ is here. He's no mere prophet. He's God himself. He's calling you to account. He is uncovering your heart. You are either going to be revealed as wheat or chaff, as something good or something to be thrown into the fire. And that's what Jesus does for all of us. Jesus the Christ reveals whether we are good trees, trees that bear good fruit, or whether we are trees for the, fit for the fires of hell. But of course, none of us are naturally bearing that good fruit, are we? None of us are by nature those who deserve to be gathered into Christ's barn. Just to be saved by Christ, we need him to give us new life. We need his transforming grace. We need a baptism by the Holy Spirit. We need regeneration. When you first come to Christ, I think you have a sense of this. You, you, become to get, you get convicted of your sin, right? And you, you realize you can do nothing about it. Lila got a, a book, uh, a little children's Pilgrim's Progress, and you know the first picture is of Pilgrim with his burden on the back. So last night we were talking about these burdens, right? And the burden you know, is not a, a literal rock we carry on our back, but the point is he can't get rid of his own burden. And the pilgrim just is desperate to find someone who can help him with his burden. 
And the burden doesn't roll off him until he comes to the cross. We are completely unable to pay for our own sins. We are completely unable to give ourselves new life. But the reason Christ came is to do that. He is the mighty one who comes to give new life to dead sinners. And he comes and he does that by taking our burdens on himself. He ties the rock to himself. He died on the cross for our sins. He died. He bore the axe himself. The axe of God's judgment swung upon him so that we could be freed of our sin and forgiven. So if you feel that that burden this morning, if you know that you're weighed down by your sin and you can't do anything about it, then the gospel is for you this morning. Christ welcomes sinners like you. One of the great hymns says it so well, the only fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. Luke would have us all feel our need for Christ this morning. We need the salvation that only comes from God himself coming as a man, paying for our sins, and rising from the dead. Jesus can do this because he is the mighty one. He can give new life to dead sinners, and he rejoices to do so. So repent of your sins and trust in him, and you'll receive this forgiveness. By faith in him, people who are weighed down by sin can be freed and can become God's children. This is the new and saving work that John announces in Luke chapter 3. So the question for all of us is, have I been saved by God through Jesus Christ? Have I been brought from death to life by Jesus? If not, today is the day to be saved. Repent of your sins and trust in him. As I already mentioned, this passage ends in a really sobering way by recounting Herod's evil. Herod had been rebuked by John the Baptist because he had stolen his brother's wife. And so Herod imprisoned John and would eventually execute him. And so here is a dramatic example of a tree with bad fruit. And he's just adding bad fruit to bad fruit. When Herod was confronted by the word of God, by God's appointed prophet... Herod's response was to try to lock up the prophet, to try to silence God. But God cannot be silenced. Christ cannot be resisted. He has come with the winnowing fork in his hand to save and to judge. So again, will you be gathered into Christ's family? Or will you go on resisting God the way Herod did? Don't ignore or try to silence God. Don't ignore what God has revealed for all people to see in Christ. Even now in the word, you are coming face to face with Christ this morning. And one day you will see him on his glorious throne. When you do, will you greet him by faith as your savior? Or will you find him your judge who casts you out? Repentance and faith makes all the difference. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you put these things in your word to arrest us, such that the good news never becomes old news to us. Father, we pray that you would remove any dullness from our hearts. We pray that if if we as your people have made any peace with sin, any kinds of neglect or abusing others or living just for ourselves, that you would wake us up, that you would grant us repentance, that we would realize that we weren't saved to return into sin and death. Help us to walk as children of light. And Father, I pray for our children here and anyone here who is yet to come to faith in you, that you would use this message to save them, that you would grant new life. We are so thankful that you are the God of life and that through Christ, the mighty Son of God, you raise sinners to life. We pray for you to do that among us. In Jesus' name, amen.